We often talk about institutional adoption in crypto. Well, that requires some of the largest institutional players to come in and create products that are similar to what we have in legacy markets. And there's no company bigger or better to do that than the S&P. Chuck Mounts and Charles Jansen came together. They're unlikely teammates to form the DeFi team at S&P, and they're going to create indexes and ratings just like we have in legacy markets for crypto. It's absolutely huge, and you don't want to miss their story. That's dope. I can say personally that the first thing I think of when I hear S&P is cryptocurrency. <laughs> Obviously not the case, right? So uh, I would say that might actually be the last thing that you would think about. So how is the S&P now involved in this space and, and why? Right. So um, S&P Global has multiple businesses and two of the leading businesses are S&P Global Ratings, which is the largest rating agency in the world, and S&P Dow Jones Indices. So um, we have already launched several uh crypto indices in the space. Um, and there was a, Charles and I separately had conversations with different or parts of our exco about how um, we as an organization need to be paying attention to and getting involved in the movement towards decentralized finance. Um, and so that led to the creation of our team, um, the DeFi team. Uh, so we sit in a strategy function and we have a remit to um, help the organization prepare to adapt and create a new generation of products and services that are fit for purpose in decentralized markets. So we're a small team, but we work with stakeholders across the organization to try to accomplish that goal. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at the conversation where you pitched this to the CEO. What did, what did you guys tell him to? So they were actually separate conversations and many. Uh, that culminated in the outcome of like, okay, we got to get involved. And our CEO actually introduced Charles and I to each other. So I come from a markets background. Charles comes from a tech and crypto background. Uh, and together, we our CEO brought us together to drive this initiative. But you don't just have a crypto background, right? I've heard uh, that you're the most interesting man in the world, like the guy in the Corona commercials uh, <laughs> doing surgery. And yeah, so it's like being following the wind. So I'm living in Argentina right now. I was in China before, in Brazil before, in France originally. Uh, I did a few years of medicine. I hated it. So, <laughs> I've, I've, you know, doctors were all uh, either divorced and depressed, thinking of where they should go in holiday. And I say, maybe I should work in hotel management. I'll just leave on the holidays. Just do the holiday part yeah. and skip the medicine part. It's perfect. <laughs> so, so I went for hotel management. I was in hotel management and then in China. And then I just come back to what I really, really liked when I was doing on the side, which was computer science. I went to Argentina where it's kind of common to start from scratch, even if you're 24 or 30. And uh, I went for computer science. I started to work at S&P Global Market Intelligence. Then there were people internally, so I was automating everything. And somebody told me, what you're doing could be automated. I was like, I'm the one automating everybody. So it <laughs> could, be, could be automated with machine learning. So I started diving in machine learning, doing uh, Kaggle competition, etc. I ended up being the head of cognitive automation at S&P um, Market Intelligence. So I had a team of 60 uh, automation specialists, machine learning engineers, data scientists, etc. But I was doing internally as a crypto guy for a while. And, you know, the, the type of guy that in 2018, everybody come and say, see, I told you. Mm -hmm. uh, but then uh, speaking with well, part of the Exco, the C-suites and many people around in 2020, after the DeFi summer, there'd been a switch. Right, like in November, December, everybody came back, was interested, wanted to know more. It seems this thing is not dead again. 
right? So like in general, crypto and what is DeFi. So we had many sessions explaining everything. Then we had uh, um, legacy uh, chief index officer, which uh, is, uh, was Chuck, which was also looking at that and moved to role to look at innovation extras. So we were introduced and we started thinking, okay, what can we do in the field? And is there a space for S&P? Because as you said, when you think crypto, nobody's really thinking S&P. So, but all the collapse we had in the last few months is all related to lack of risk management and transparency around risk, et cetera. So that, that's a place where there's actually huge demand for that. So yeah, that's, that's what we look Yeah, I'm one of Voyager's top 30 creditors, so I can, <laughs> I can certainly uh, speak to that personally, unfortunately. And so then what role do you see S&P taking in the space? What kind of products are you creating? Yeah. How do we actually uh, teach people to manage? Right. So I think um, we've already launched, I would say, the first stage of our in the ratings and the assessment business um, in the crypto space by integrating components of DeFi and digital assets into our existing ratings. So you can see that uh, with crypto natives like Coinbase and Compound, the ratings we have for them, but you can also see that in non-crypto natives that have exposure to crypto that we also rate. So that could include El Salvador, uh, that could include MicroStrategy, kind of, or other companies. So, and, and I think the next stage is to, uh, the immediately adaptable is when we look at the financing of real world assets on DeFi rails or tokenization of real world assets, uh, some of those structures will be utilizing or the opportunity to utilize securitization uh, structures. And we have a lot of experience in um, kind of assessing the risk and securitization structures. So that's another kind of, I would say, the next area that we can focus on, where we can contribute to the evolution and maturation uh, of the industry by bringing our expertise in uh, assessing the risk and securitizations to this part of the DeFi market. In the long term, though, I think the real opportunity for us is to look at how do we take our historical expertise and credit analysis and off-chain analysis and combine it with a new set of on-chain data and analytics to create a holistic approach to risk in the DeFi ecosystem uh, that brings together both the systemic risks in the system and the idiosyncratic risks in the system. We have a lot of experience in that in the off-chain world um, and looking to develop the, those uh, parameters and that expertise uh, in the DeFi and digital asset world. Um, and so that's what we see as a real opportunity for the firm in the longer term to create this new generation of risk assessment products that will help not only TradFi clients um, onboard DeFi and crypto into uh, their existing business models, but also uh, further advance uh, the maturation and the move away from over collateralization um, in the DeFi space. Right. So we think there's a real opportunity and need for that. And we would like, to, we are striving to be the ones who provide that. You talked about sort of the systemic risk and lack of risk management. And we've seen sort of the collapse of these C5 platforms left and right. But the story that nobody was really talking about is actually how well DeFi performed throughout this crash, right? As you said, you're over collateralized. Liquidations happened in an orderly manner, margin. And so, yes, we have the hacks and the exploits, but I think that there has been sort of underlying proof now that DeFi is superior to a lot of these other systems. Yeah, but there's a different aspect, right? Like the problem with over collateralization is a lack of capital efficiency. So if we really, really want to scale from that, from there and have, you know, big asset manager and pension fund get in, 
they probably won't go for something over collateralized, right? They so, don't want to put down $10 billion to take your $5 billion loan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but a plus, we, well, yes. But then there is also the kind of the, what we like to almost call the new DeFi, or sometimes was called DeFi 2.0, and you got the Maples, the Centrifuge, the Trufi, the Goldfinch, the Clearpool, and, and, and all those others, which are all looking at under-collateralized, uncollateralized. Some are taking uh, like X-Margin or Narcol, Credora, risk assessment, kind of see, okay, what is the actual risk of this specific pool? And the, what we're really looking at as a second stage is just to be able to look at on-chain and off-chain. We don't have on-chain capability right now. And be able to have maybe just, again, with, at the strategy level thinking, but there's huge demand for stablecoin risk and then all around governance risk and liquidity pool risk, then here you definitely need the on-chain aspect to then be able to actually have an overall protocol risk, which then can also be used as a benchmark. So that's all the aspect we are looking at, also combining with, okay, what would we need to actually be able to do that? But something really interesting right now is, well, all those protocols, which as Chuck was mentioning, which are doing securitization in a way which is not that different to what our existing methodology are kind of looking at normally, except there is a repayment on, on, on DeFi rails. Because at the end of the day, the big question is, if you put your money here, what is the risk of not getting it back? Or what is the chance you get it back, right? So you could ask this for, if I put my money on DAI, if I put my money in this specific and, uh, or uncollateralized pool. You don't really have a lot of visibility right now. I don't just say a specific protocol, but all of them, you put your money there. You don't really fully, not, not, most is not on-chain, right? Many are actually lending to lenders. How do you know the real risk that is behind? Well, if you want trillions to get in, you'll need to have this kind of visibility on what is actually behind. And that's exactly the way it's done in TradFi. You, you have rating agencies that give you an opinion on risk. And then when there is and something like the, what happened with Wintermute. It was a hack. We're not a tech shop. Right? It's probably not, you know, we will not find the exploit before the hacker or something like that. But the big question is, okay, now that there is this hack of 160 million, did the credit risk change? And if there was a possibility for, you know, people to just look at, okay, what SMP is saying? Because the rating was that. Are you changing it? Do you have a different outlook? It, it will just transform the, the overall feel. And if you look at for the HVB deal of uh, Maker, the Huntington Valley Bank deal, there are some other that we're uh, aware of that want to have longer duration and do something similar. But longer duration is complicated in DeFi because you need to defend the peg of die, etc. Now, if you start to have a secondary market for this loan, then even protocol like Maker would be able to be a bit more relaxed knowing that they could sell maybe at a discount, but depending if, because you need a rating here to kind of have an idea of how risky is this specific loan they did. But then it just creates the possibility for a secondary market of this loan, which then enable Maker and some others to just scale. And creates a much more efficient market. Yeah, I think the Wormute is an interesting example because what we've seen, you know, when you look at the events, uh, in the beginning part of 2022, um, with Terra Luna, um, and then, uh, 3AC and Celsius, that really exemplifies the combination of idiosyncratic and systemic risks. Um, and so Wintermute is another example where, 
you know, we are well-versed in our traditional business of looking at both credit fundamental risk and operating risk. And so how do you think about operating risk in a crypto and DeFi context? And so perhaps uh, the smart contract audit is a piece of the operating risk that is unique uh, to DeFi that needs to be integrated appropriately into our uh, approach to risk assessment. So it's not like you're necessarily starting uh, from a, an entirely new concept, but you're applying it uh, in a way that is different and, and fit for purpose uh, for this ecosystem. Yeah, the, f the first few chapters of the book, but you, you definitely need to finish it. I mean, that makes perfect sense and seems like a monumental challenge. I want to focus on something you both mentioned, which is obviously securitizing these assets. I think there's an idea in the crypto space, sort of pie in the sky, that we tokenize everything, right? You tokenize everything, it improves everything. Your house is attached to an NF NFT, your title, your mortgage, every stock, no more clearing, right? We just exchange one-to-one. One -one. Is that the end goal? Do you see it as a replacement for the systems? Or are you looking to build effectively, you know, a parallel financial system for people who maybe don't have access to the well, I would say that Charles and I actually agree in the pie in the sky that we think the tokenization of everything is going to happen. Um, but you know, who can who can predict the exact twists and turns of the pathway to that? Um, but in the meantime, we want to make sure that our organization is uh, positioned uh, to provide the services and products that are needed to shed light on risks in the industry and allow stakeholders to make informed decisions and to help facilitate kind of better price discovery kind of in the ecosystem. Uh, so in the long run, we think tokenization of everything kind of will happen. Um, but in the, in, the, in the range from purely centralized to purely decentralized, you know, my personal opinion is that we're still gonna end up in some blended space. You know, it's not, the maximalists on both sides will- How, how dare you admit <laughs> that there's not just pure centralization? That's literally one of my favorite talking points is, and you can't be purely decentralized without starting centralized anyways and moving in that direction. Right, and so what I think we will strive to do is ensure that as the, as the landscape evolves and innovates and uh, matures, making sure that we are keeping pace with it and evolving our products and services and capabilities alongside it. So if it ends up in kind of the ex far extreme towards de decentralization, we wanna be positioned for that. And if it ends up right in the middle, of a like, well-balanced blend between centralized and decentralized, then we want to be position, positioned for that too. And I would imagine the further down the spectrum it lands, the more of the big companies will be left behind in the institutions that currently exist. I mean, now we are obviously, your S&P, we're talking about NASDAQ doing custody, we're talking about Fidelity and Citadel partnering for exchanges, BlackRock, the names are here. Right, and, and you can see who's not, who intends not to get left behind. So what's really interesting to us is in the, since the creation of our team, you know, four or five months ago, um, we've been out speaking to stakeholders across the world from all different areas. So trad, you know, TradFi, crypto native, uh, buy side, sell side, regulators, policymakers, et cetera, et cetera. And what's been really interesting to us is that there's a wide range of uh, positioning from our TradFi clients uh, some that are very advanced, uh, I would say a small handful that are kind of very advanced. Um, and then even maybe a smaller handful that have dedicated something kind of in alignment with what we've done, like a very small team to start focusing on it and figuring out kind of how to carry our strategy forward. But then the vast majority 
is more like, okay, we need to do something with this. Let's pull together a task force, a working group, where everybody still has a full daytime job. You can go but they add report. on this, you know, on top of it. Um, and I think that's going to change in the next uh, period, whether that's uh, you know two, one quarter, two quarters, four quarters. But I think it's going to start changing pretty quickly as the big players have been investing human and financial capital to build capabilities. And now that we're on the verge, I think, of getting um, some stablecoin legislation in the U.S., I think that will prove to be a turning point uh, that first of all, allows the players that have already invested invested in their capabilities to start executing and really scale their execution, but will also incentivize and kind of galvanize action for all the other players that are looking at it but haven't really taken kind of a lot of concrete steps to... And they'll just actually be able to deploy <laughs> and get it past their, their risk managers, which I think for a lot... But what's interesting is you just described sort of three levels of institutional interest with all the people you're meeting with. There wasn't the fourth level, which was the only one we heard in 2017 and 18, which is this crap is going to zero. We want nothing to do with it. I was going to say that we're so far away from 2018, right? 2018 trading desks were closed. Everybody was going away. And now if you don't look at the price, it really doesn't look like a bear market. There's a lot of people at mainnet. Uh, all the institutions are investing and doing everything we, we just mentioned. It, it just, it doesn't, like you don't look at the price, it's not a bear market. Like everybody continue to invest and create. There's more and more developer, more and more and more hiring in big institutions compared to 2018 where everybody was closing shop, except some DeFi products. Yeah, I would have argued at institutions in 2018, if you were the guy who dared to walk into a meeting and say the word Bitcoin, you probably had the risk of being fired. And now if you're working there and you don't have an opinion, you're probably at the risk of being fired. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Like also in my personal life, so I've been my, spent my career on Wall Street um, and my peer group typically, you know, if I go back a year and you told them you're looking at crypto, that was like, that's all a scam. That's just like, yeah. you know, like, are you crazy? Uh, and today, now, they'll they'll be somewhere to either be uh, staying quiet or saying, yeah, it's interesting. I'm going to start looking into this. So the, I, I can see in my own personal life, like a, a dramatic change in my peer group um, from the TradFi peer group uh, just in the last year. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take any interest, all hands on deck that we can get. You, you talked about the idea that we might have some hopefully sensible stablecoin regulation coming down the pipe from the United States. Are you concerned that there will be less sensible regulation in other areas of the market that might uh, stifle what you're building or Im impact the market negatively. Yeah, so I think um, I would call I would call it policy formation more broadly because it's going to be a, a, a combination of regulatory actions and legislative actions. Um, and of course, whenever you're charting a new course uh, and creating a new framework, there's always going to be the risk of missteps or what I would characterize really as unintended consequences. Um, and so regu regulatory formation and legislation formation will be kind of full of pitfalls of unintended consequences. And so when you look at the legislation that I think may be coming soon on stablecoins, it's really targeted um, fiat-backed, US dollar fiat-backed uh, stablecoins. Um, and I suspect- Fully, fully or over-collateralized. Right. <laughs> And that will be like the starting point. And then as it starts to migrate out into kind of uh, maybe other forms of stable coins or tokenized deposits or 
looking at DeFi, which could take years to get to, there's going to be uh, a lot of room for kind of uh, legislation or regulation that kind of isn't exactly what is the best for the market. But I do think that, um, you know, as the market matures and, and as these big traditional players get more involved, I think that's going to help uh, the policy formation cycle. Uh, so I'm hopeful that we can minimize the number of unintended consequences as we go kind of go through this period in time. And when you look at the like a piece of legislation that's been proposed from Senators Loomis and Gillibrand, you know, that's a pretty wide ranging. And my suspicion is that uh, we're going to get this narrow stablecoin focus in the short term. And then looking at the broader ecosystem will probably get unbundled and, and broken into kind of more component parts. Um, and I think that'll be good for the industry and for stakeholders, you know, for I, all stakeholders. I think that piece of proposed legislation was the most encouraging thing that we've seen. Pragmatic, sensible, uh, and obviously, as you said, most of it will probably never even be addressed, <laughs> right? But, but the very idea that that's sitting on everyone's desk, I think, is extremely encouraging. Yeah, and it's also, uh, we were joking with, when we were in Europe that, uh, you know, people think bipartisanship is dead in, in the U.S., uh, but... Here in this space, bipartisanship is really alive, and uh, you have a lot of support. You have detractors and support on both sides of the aisle, and I think uh, that's also a function of the, the realization of how important this is and how transformational it can be. Uh, and the more that um, uh, policymakers kind of get in tune with what the promise of this is, I think you'll see kind of the story getting more uh, complex and nuanced, which will... I think, lead to better policymaking. I hope so. You were a bank regulator at the Fed recently and sort of went under the radar. There was a proposal or statement that banks who want to custody crypto should view it as a liability rather than an asset. That blew my mind. <laughs> you would have to have a cash equivalent in the bank to be able to custody crypto assets. I mean, to me, that would be as damaging as anything. I mean, State Street and BNY Mellon are not going to do that. Well, I, I, I think we should expect to see a number of uh, proposals that, you know, upon further um, inspection, uh, might not be optimal for the totality yeah. <laughs> of, of the economy and for the ecosystem. Yeah, I don't think um, have it. You know, and in policymakers, you think about their challenge, right? They're trying to balance uh, systemic stability with consumer protection and um, providing for financial innovation. So that's a tough balance to find. Um, and I think what I've seen in kind of discussions and following uh, the policy landscape um, is that that last piece of financial innovation is getting more attention. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really easy and, and prudent to focus on consumer protection and systemic stability. But as the importance of financial innovation gets elevated, I think that will also um, kind of help reducing the, the uh, potential for unintended consequences in the policy formation. Well, let's live in a fantastic world where we get all the regulation and sensible policy that we want. What would be the most optimistic, ideal version of what S&P could build within that framework? What, you know, in 10 years, where do you see the role in what you've built in this market. Ten years is pretty hard because DeFi is just too old. We all know that's dog years. I mean, <laughs> in 70 years, where do you see it? But, yeah. but no, the, the goal is really to bring transparency, right? Like one of the things we've been asked several times is, oh, but if, do you think that if you were in the field 
when Salesforce and Voyager and everything happened, would you have helped avoid that? And, and we're not really saying that, but we would have broad transparency. So then you decide which risk you want to take. And yesterday uh, at the opening panel of Mainnet, uh, one of the speakers was saying that, you know, people were saying, hey, there's 99% yield here. I don't care about the risk. I'm just taking it. So it might not have changed everything, but at least you would have known. I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Uh, yeah. If, if someone had said that they just offered a $700 million un uncollateralized loan to somebody, I think at least 25 to 30% of people would have said, yeah. I'm going to take my money out. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of that. I, I, well, that's the goal, right? I, right. Just, I'm trying to say oh, we're not pretending that we'll transform everything. Like my opinion, my own, I think it could because that's exactly what he's lacking. Like if you put your money, I'm, you know, really interested in the field in general, crypto native. I have no idea of the risk when I put my money in a specific pool. This is just not something you can assess yourself. You don't have the information, especially for uncollateralized pool or even CFI, which was a full black box. And you thought it was a bank. I didn't use them because Not I'm you, on but the you're your side. average yeah. person. Yeah. That was the difference here between, listen, if you invested in ICOs and lost all of your money, at least you were crypto, crypto native. Now we're talking about your average person who deposited into something that they thought was a bank, that they thought was FDIC insured and lost everything. And it was all, all around TikTok, all around YouTube. It was yeah. mentioned as something safe. Yeah. Uh, that, that's why there is a need. And, and it's interesting because the, the field is really trying to self-regulate and basically continuously finding solution. And there are actors within the DeFi space which are looking at risk in general, right? In different ways, you got Gauntlet in their own way, you got uh, Certic is looking, well, uh, not just at the, they're doing some monitoring also. Uh, CoinMatrix is looking at risk. Uh, of course, Credo X Margin, uh, uh, the change name, Membrane is kind of in a way doing this now. So it's happening. Will we be part of the mix from this tri-fi angle? Well, that's definitely something we want to because the issue and spectral also I didn't mention. Most are looking just on chain. But again, if we look at all the issue we had, this would not have helped, for instance, with what we had. So or you would have had less people affected because they would have known the risk. But it was on, on chain, right? So basically nobody could flag it. There were many were already there. So you need something which is both on-chain and off-chain, looking not just at uh, risk of liquidation exercise. It's, it's a complex uh, equation, but you, knew, you need to look at the actual credit risk itself, not just you know, what is the risk of uh, exploit, et cetera. And, and right now, nobody is really doing that. Right. So would it be a simple what we want to do? A rating system comparable to what you have elsewhere? Yeah, uh, so uh, we don't know yet. Um, I don't know that it will be a rating. Um, rating is something pretty spe specific, um, and it may be more akin to like a cyber risk assessment or an ESG risk assessment. Um, so that's to be determined. But as, as Charles was saying, the goal here is to really shine a light on the risks that exist so investors can make informed decisions on what kind of risks they want to take, and, and that so markets can price risk appropriately. And I think that's what, that's the role we help play in traditional markets. And I think that's a role that we can help play in DeFi and crypto markets uh, by kind of shining the light on where the risks are, both idiosyncratic and systemic. Uh, it will facilitate price discovery and, and, and appropriate pricing for the risks that are there. 
So I think that'll be hugely beneficial for the ecosystem um, and also hugely beneficial in getting and unlocking what we believe will be trillions of dollars of TradFi assets into the ecosystem. Yeah, it's my feeling that the pensions and the endowments are all just waiting for an excuse. They just need to be able to do it in a risk-managed manner, right? When we spoke with several protocols, they are speaking with pension fund, they are speaking with big asset manager, and what is being said to them is, we need two things. We need visibility on risk. That's definitely where we can help. And we need regulation. But even when we speak with them and we explain what we're doing, first, many are surprised. Because, oh, you're looking at that field. And they're also saying on the asset management side that if there was something with an actual rating or risk assessment, it would even transform internally the conversation for them on the possibility to do things. Because now you can say, well, there is you know, a third party that, give, uh, that we work with that gives that kind of opinion, even internally change everything. And almost on the DeFi side too, and I was surprised when several people at, uh, at Maker Core units told us that we would bring decentralization in the field from like ZDAO, right? The decentralization. But it makes sense because right now, who is doing the risk assessment? Well, they got a team doing it, and then you got the one asking for money, which is saying, hey, send me money, I'm super safe. Yeah. So a third party in the middle is kind of a way of decentralization. It's not me saying it's maker. ironic. Yeah. <laughs> if we were supposed to eliminate all of the trusted third parties, but you actually need them. And I've heard that sort of narrative repeated multiple times in, in interviews that I've been doing of late. It really is an interesting take. And you talked about sort of the self-regulation in the space, but even some of the names that you threw out, I mean, every one of these hacks and exploits that we've seen has been audited by multiple companies. These are audited smart contracts that are still getting hacked and exploited. So even from internally, the best risk assessment we can do, they generally have ended up failing. There, none of these exploits have happened to something that yeah. was unaudited. But, but the question we don't have an answer to is when there is an exploit, and I don't think anybody can, you know, there is white hat that can help, but at the end of the day, if there is an exploit, it will happen. Not everybody will be able to find it. Et sure. Now, once it happened, the answer we don't have is what it, how does it change the, the credit risk from this specific borrower? That's really missing. And this could be calculated, but it's not something that really exists. So that's exactly where we, we want to help and, and push the field to maturity and, and have the sensors. So yeah, that's a when, clearing hole. Yeah. So you, know, you talk about systemic and idio, idiosyncratic risk and understanding them. It's funny because a lot of people viewed Bitcoin certainly, but the crypto space in general as an asset class that offered idiosyncratic risk to your portfolio. Have you been surprised at all at how it's been trading in lockstep with equities during this bear market? Yeah, uh, yes. Um, I don't think the correlation you've seen with digital assets or crypto or Bitcoin in particular uh, with equities or tech stocks in particular really makes sense to me. Um, I understand why it's happening, uh, but I think in the long term that correlation is going to break down. It will. It, it always did. It was uncorrelated. So it's, yeah, I mean, so, I guess it's and, one of those when in a bear market, everything goes to one. And, um, and as the TradFi players come in, that may also kind of provide a pathway to kind of an extended period of high correlations. Um, but the, the fundamental characteristics and the, the efficiency and improvement in cost of capital and the, the, the improvement that DeFi and crypto assets and digital assets bring to the ecosystem will stand on their own. Uh, and so I do fully expect the correlation to break down. I just 
it's hard to say when that's going to happen. That's kind of uh, one of those things where you get what you wish for and everybody wanted institutions here, but institutions don't come in to buy Bitcoin to hedge against inflation. They come in because it's another asset in their portfolio that they can long or short and it starts to trade like everything else and it's liquid 24-7. Yeah, and it will also be interesting to see as more TradFi uh, players come into the space, um, do they focus on kind of the specific integrating Bitcoin or ETH or other kind of digital assets into their portfolio construction? Or do they actually look at the abilities of financial engineering uh, that this space offers? And I suspect it will probably be one leads to the other, but I think the real opportunity, uh, yes, I think there will be portfolio construction that goes across traditional, tokenized traditional and crypto native assets. I think that will eventually happen. Um, but I think the real opportunity set in the space is kind of from the market um, kind of functioning and financial engineering perspective. So we go from 60-40 to 60-35-5 or something, something like that like first, that. but then they realize that they can actually earn yield in this space in a secure manner, and that's really the unlock and the exciting part. That's what I think. It's all about yield, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what people have gone to crypto for. Yeah. I guess now you can get 4% on a one-year treasury. But. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where the stacking of or the staking of, of Ethereum is kind of making many people kind of reflect on how can he, you know, well, the bond market is getting complicated. The 50-40 model, since I think Bitcoin Miami and every conference we've been, we've been at many, is being mentioned, it's kind of, not really relevant anymore, it's going to evolve. Where is the place of, st of staking here? Because there is an actual digital asset and, and then there is something like Ethereum, which should be deflationary when there is enough uh, movement there. Deflationary asset that gives a yield, that, that's really new. Now, well, the risk around that is a totally different question, but, but we think that the, the portfolio management, the portfolio configuration will be like resold 100%. I mean, I've seen that argument made about the merge and the move to proof of stake countless times. Now you have effectively a benchmark yield within the crypto space so everyone else can now say, listen, if, if Ethereum is 7%, we're doing, you know, Ethereum plus one to get you to 8%, is that worth the risk? I mean, is that sort of what you would be looking at? Yeah. I think one of the interesting conversations we've had internally is how do you think about the risk-free rate in a crypto context. So in traditional markets, the, the concept of a risk-free rate and discounting of cash flows and valuations that flow from that are all well understood and documented. Um, but in the case of DeFi and digital assets and crypto, is the risk-free rate kind of the same or, or could there be multiple risk-free rates? Um, and then how does that translate into the valuation and uh, within the, and across the ecosystem? So that's a really, I don't have an answer to that. That pretty much is the question, but right? Question. Is Ethereum now a risk-free rate? Right. No, but it's probably the closest that or we've come in for. stake. It's probably the closest that we've come. And then, of course, you know, the argument is, sure, you can get 7% uh, on your ETH, but what if ETH goes down 70%? Right. Yeah, but then, well, I live in Argentina right now, so so it, you have a different perspective when you got 100% inflation and uh, the, the currency is being devaluated constantly. So it's, it's always you compare to what, right? So right now in the US, you you have a very strong strong currency, uh, you do have inflation, but but there is this concept outside of the US on, you know, what is really the alternative you have compared to the option in in TradFi and what is risk free. 
in, in some country can very vary also. And this is global. This is something like if you, even if from, well, the security of it, right? If you have, if you stack in, in, uh, in East and you're in Ukraine and you're, you know, the, what happened happened, you can just move somewhere else and you still have your ease. Now, maybe you had something seen as risk-free, risk-free in a bank account. Can you still access it? Is it really risk-free? There's a lot of different angle in a very changing world to, to look at that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot easier uh, to talk about this asset class in the United States for institutions who just view it as another asset rather than something that can save your life. I mean, everyone's heard the stories, you know, of people crossing the border and being allowed to keep $50 when they leave. If you have your seed phrase in your mind, obviously, then uh, they can't steal your assets. I think that's huge. You live in Argentina. I've actually had a guest on previously who said that he would basically, when he would get cash, he would take it, convert it to United States dollars, and then put it in the safety deposit box in his bank rather than depositing it into the bank. So clearly there's a real problem in Argentina. It's not him. It's everybody. I'm not speaking about me. Like but you use the bank as a safety security, like, as a safety deposit box rather than most as a will savings just, account. Most will have it at home because banks have been taking everything from people several times in Argentina and it's not a full guarantee to have, you know, safe in a bank. So there's crazy amount of cash within like the home of the people just because, well, it, if you save in pesos this year, you already lost half of the value of your money. Right. So everybody that I've seen that I know, the first thing you do at the beginning of the month, you receive your salary, you check how much you need to spend, and all the rest is moving to the gold of the country, which is the dollar. Right. And, but now, so there is a full, it's called like a black market for that, because you cannot access the dollar directly with the, the normal exchange. And this black market has been evolving, and now they offer also a lot of different stable coin for, for a fee. And people are transition, uh, like moving to that. And it's also a way, like the, it's a really complex question in Argentina. I love Argentina. Uh, but because of many restrictions, there's many, many people that actually work in also a type of black market. So they'll either get paid before in Uruguay, in dollar, and they would go in a boat and, and bring back the money, then change it as three times the, the value on, on the black market. Or now they can just do it with crypto and they get paid in crypto. Uh, of course, it's illegal from uh, an Argentinian uh, well, low standpoint because you, they're not paying tax, etc. But it's it, like on the like developers and that kind of thing. It's it's very common. It looked like it was going to be legal, and then the IMF came in, obviously, and <laughs> said Argentina may, maybe not. But that's a conversation, I guess, for a different different podcast. But I think Bitcoiners love the idea that people in countries with hyperinflating economies are going to buy Bitcoin to hedge. But I think you actually just Save identified them. the truth and people don't want to hear it, is that for most people, stable coins, which is access to the dollars that you can't get, is actually what they're converting into, and that those stable coins are much easier to transact with. Yeah, average people now will, will have access in Argentina. Actually, it's, 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 uh, it's paradoxal. It's because of all, well, the context, you have a way higher adoption of this technology by a broad range of people just because, well, the place where you would normally go to get your uh, edge against inflation now also for your crypto. Very few are actually using protocol, and but they would use wallet 
and yeah, they actual wallet, wallet, not centralized exchange in many time, where you'll just deposit and then you can send, et cetera. But very few are actually using the yield. But if you think of it, like in many of those countries, not just Argentina, you cannot many times get a yield which is safe and above inflation. And if you think of a yield in dollar, it's going to be very, very low. But now, well, you have this stable coin, you got this protocol, and you don't need to be in any country to really be able to interact with them. So and that's something, again, that is really not seen a different way from the US. But there, I've been some different, seen different podcasts and I agree with them. Some country might lose their currency, but not because of Bitcoin. So many of the rhetoric of Bitcoin are actually true, but might happen with stablecoin. Yeah. That's my opinion I, on my own. I, 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 I hate to admit, but that's become my my opinion as well. That's not what I would have thought three or four years ago. So just circling back to SMP, of course, you guys obviously are in the infancy of your team. You said it's only been a few months. If you had to guess, at what point do we start actually seeing ratings and reports coming to fruition that are usable for institutions and the general public? Well, I would say we've already started that with the rating of compound prime and treasury. Um, and uh, kind of, I think we're going to see more uh, ratings coming out from the DeFi and crypto landscape that harness our existing uh, infrastructure around risk assessments. So it could be corporate risk assessment, sovereign risk assessments, uh, structured products risk assessment. And I think you're going to see kind of more of that rolling out in, in the near term. Uh, kind of building that longer stage uh, risk assessment framework that uh, Charles and I were talking about, it's hard to say be, kind of what that time frame is going to look like. You never even know what the space is going to look like. We don't know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, there's still a lot of what we are, we've been doing the information gathering, getting connected with kind of on chain um, kind of players to start really um, figuring out what are the needs that uh, crypto native and non-crypto native players would need for risk assessment? What are the data points that we would need to create the IP that enables the uh, risk assessment capability? And then how do we go about kind of building that and a go to market? So that's, that's a lot of steps still to come. But in the shorter term, uh, I think you're going to see a continued uh, focus on kind of the harnessing those existing capabilities to come up with ratings that are fit for purpose uh, for for debt issuance. You mentioned reports. Yeah. We have a few reports that were done by the research lab. Yeah, so we also created um, maybe about a year and a half ago a research lab uh, in the organization that focuses on uh, digital assets and crypto. So um, S&P Global Ratings has about 1,500 or so uh, credit analysts. So it's a deep pool yeah. of credit expertise. Um, and the research lab pulls from across not only the whole ratings franchise, but also across the whole organization um, to put out thought leadership and undertake studies to help inform our not only ourselves, but help inform our clients and kind of broader set of stakeholders on, on the ecosystem. So yeah, you're clearly the people to do it. Everybody else would have to reinvent the wheel and you guys have already been doing it. So that makes perfect sense. Well, I think we all agree that there's a institutional wall of money just waiting. So if you guys can help us open those <laughs> floodgates, we really appreciate it. And we'll be cheering for everything you guys are doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course.